And I encourage you here, you'll be able to see it on the screen behind me and you can follow verse by verse exactly what we're reading. If you'd prefer to read it, get your Bible out. Acts 12, verses 1 through 5, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And became, because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread, so when they, they had uh, apprehended him, they put him, he put him in the prison and delivered him to four uh, squads of soldiers to keep him intending to bring him before the people after the Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was being offered to God for him by the church. She asked her husband, what do you think that means? I'm going to start over because I just heard the mic kick on. And I've got the green light. There's a woman, woke up one morning, turned to her husband and said, I just had a crazy dream. I dreamed that you bought me a brand new gold necklace. She said, what do you think that means? And he said, I don't know, honey, but your birthday's coming up. Maybe you'll have your answer then. A week later, she woke her husband up again. Said, honey, I've had another dream. I dreamed that you bought me a brand new pearl necklace. What do you think that means? And he goes, be patient, honey. You'll find out on your birthday. The morning of her birthday arrives, and she wakes up, nudges her husband, and says, I had a third dream. This time I dreamed you bought me a brand new diamond necklace. What could that mean? And he said, honey, you'll find out tonight. He came home that afternoon with a package and handed it to her, and in her excitement she tore it open to discover that he had bought her a book entitled The Meaning of Dreams. Now, here's the point of that. Sometimes, and I'm sure you've experienced this at well, sometimes we have experiences that fail to live up to our expectations. You ever been there? You have an experience that does not match the expectation you've set for that experience. Some of you are feeling that right now because you're looking at the screen and you're going, come on, Kyle, it's a new year. You're supposed to start a new sermon series. And typically that would be the case. But there's one last lesson I want to address from the book of Acts. And it comes from the 12th chapter of Acts, as we were just reading a moment ago. 
And by, by doing this lesson, we'll have completed a study of the first 12 chapters of Acts, and that brings us to a great stopping point. We can do the last half at another time, but the first half of Acts, chapters 1 through 12, focuses on events coming from the church in Jerusalem, centered around the character of Peter, and then you get to chapter 13, and it all changes. Everything focuses on the spread of the church, and the central character is Paul. So this brings us to a great stopping point. But I want you to be thinking about expectations as we enter this chapter, because we all have expectations about a variety of facets of our lives. And quite possibly the one place where our expectations are the most vocalized and the most ardently pursued are in matters of faith. But what's so interesting and at times disappointing to me is that many Christians have expectations about worship, about ministry, about the church, but they've stopped having expectations about God. What I mean is that many Christians have stopped expecting God to do anything in response to their faith, in response to their worship, in response to their prayers. For some of us, the belief that God will do anything, not that He can do anything, but that He will do anything, has been lost. Maybe it was lost because we've had prayers that we felt went unanswered. Maybe it's been lost because there's been a tragedy in our lives that we haven't been able to wrap our minds around. Maybe that belief that God will do something is lost because we have some doubts that we just can't shake. Or maybe it's been lost because of personal failures that we just can't overcome. But some of us have stopped expecting God to show up. Stopped expecting God to answer our prayers. Stopped expecting God to change things. And I think Acts chapter 12 speaks to this. When you get to Acts chapter 12, we have persecution rearing its ugly head again. But it's a little different this time. Because unlike Acts chapter 5, when the apostles are arrested, this persecution is not initiated by the Jewish leaders. And unlike Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is martyred, this persecution is not initiated by offended members of the Jewish community. This time, the persecution is initiated by a representative of the Roman government. The highest ranking official of, of the Roman government in the area at this time was a guy named Herod Agrippa I. He's simply called Herod in Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. I'm going to refer to him as Agrippa to help distinguish him for our, for our sakes today. Herod Agrippa I is the grandson of Herod the Great. And he grew up in Rome. He was educated in Rome. He befriended as a youth some of the future emperors, namely Caligula and Claudius. And those two guys, when they became emperors, they rewarded their friendship with Herod Agrippa I by giving him the territories that we know as Judea, Samaria, and Galilee to reign over them. He was king over those territories from AD 41 to 44 in particular. He had the largest empire, if you will, could use that language, of a Herod descendant since Herod the Great. And here's the thing, Herod Agrippa I really wanted to please his subjects. 
He really wanted the Jewish people to like him. So in public, he observed all the Jewish laws. In private, it was a different affair. But in public, he made sure he did things like the Jewish people. And they liked him. Unlike his predecessors, Herod the Great and Herod Antipas and others like that, he was actually well-liked by the Jewish people. And so here we are in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa I is reigning over Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. He wants to please the Jews, and he's learned that the Jewish people don't like this sect of Christians. And so what does he choose to do? He decides that I'm going to win some popularity points here. I'm going to go after the leaders of that thing, that group called Christians. And so he grabs one of the big three apostles, one of the inner circle of Jesus' closest friends. He grabs James, the son of Zebedee, and he has him killed. Now, James was top three, but why not go for the top dog? So he goes after Peter, and he arrests Peter. And every implication of this story indicates that Peter's fate was going to be the same as James. And that's where we pick up the story. Thanks to Herod Agrippa's desire to win some popularity points with his subjects, James is dead and Peter is imprisoned, apparently awaiting the same fate. Now what are you supposed to do when you face opposition like this? What are you supposed to do when you're arrested and pending execution for nothing more than a political figure's desire to please his constituents? What are you supposed to do when a leader of the church and one of your brothers in Christ is in prison and there's nothing you can do to help him? What do you do? Well, here's what I find to be the most beautiful aspect of Acts chapter 12. And that is that everyone in this chapter, every believer in this chapter, did exactly what he or she was supposed to. To do in this situation. Let's start with Peter. Here's what Peter does. Peter trusted. Now look at what we're told about Peter in Acts chapter 12 and verse 6. It says, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. It's the night before Peter's trial which means it's likely the night before his death, his execution. It's his potential last night on earth, and he's sleeping. Do you think you would sleep soundly under those circumstances? You're chained, one arm chained to a soldier on your right, one arm chained to a soldier on your left. You're on a cold prison floor, and you know tomorrow you're probably going to die. Do you think you're going to be sound asleep? Do you think that's going to come easily? Peter is out. And there's a little detail that comes in the next verse. If you look at verse 7, we find out that when this angel who's going to rescue him shows up, the angel has to hit him to get him to wake up. He's so sound asleep, the angel had to smack him. You ever had to do that? You got somebody snoring next to you? Smack him. Peter is that sound asleep here. But I think that speaks 
to what Peter has actually done. I think Peter was able to sleep because Peter had placed his trust in God to deliver him one way or another, by life or by death, as Paul would later write. You see, rest has a theological purpose. Rest is a demonstration of our trust in God. When we rest, we surrender control to the Lord by intentionally refraining from active control. In other words, when we rest, we are essentially proclaiming that everything's going to be okay without our involvement because we believe that God is in control. You know, David realized this. He wrote Psalm 3 while he was fleeing from Absalom, his son who was trying to overthrow his kingdom. And in Psalm chapter 3 and verse 5, David said, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. He would go on in Psalm chapter 4 and verse 8, as well as Psalm 23, to talk about laying down and resting as well. And when David wrote psalms like this, he acknowledged that his ability to rest during turbulent times was because the Lord took care of him. David associated his ability to rest with his trust in God. So our rest can function as an expression of such trust in the one who grants us rest. And Peter is doing here the only thing that he can do in this situation. He's resting, and that rest likely demonstrates that he's turned the situation over to God and trusts that God, God's will will be done, either in life or in death. And while Peter rested, the rest of the believers did what they could do. They prayed. The church prayed. You can read this in Acts chapter 12 and verse 5, where it says, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. In fact, we find out later in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12 that some members of this congregation in Jerusalem, they had gathered together in the house of one individual named Mary that very night that Peter was asleep so that they could engage specifically in prayer for him. So the church is praying. And the fact that they are praying is significant because there were certainly a couple of logical reasons for them to give up on prayer at this point. They could have given up on prayer because of previous disappointment. Don't you think that they had prayed for James? When Herod Agrippa had nabbed James, don't you think they were praying for his release, for his escape, for his protection? But James still died. So it would have been easy for them to, to think to themselves, if God didn't save James when we prayed for him, why should we pray for Peter? Why does prayer matter anymore? They could have very easily quit praying if their prayer for James didn't turn out the way they hoped it would. They could have given up on prayer because they sensed that God was delayed in his response. Here's what I mean. 
Acts 12 tells us that Peter was arrested during the, the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. <coughs> now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long feast that started the day after Passover. So it's eight days of feasting, eight days of holy observance. The Passover followed by the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. By New Testament times, these two feasts were so intertwined, so uh, considered synonymous that if you refer to either the Passover or the unleavened bread, you were referring to the whole thing. So you have this mention in Acts chapter 12 that Peter's arrested during the days of unleavened bread. So during this eight-day feast that starts with Passover, Peter was arrested. And we're told that Agrippa was waiting for the entire feast to conclude before he brought Peter out. We don't know what day Peter was arrested, but we know that Agrippa was waiting until the conclusion of the entire eight-day feast to deal with Peter. So it's likely that Peter was in prison more than one night, and that means it's likely that the church had been praying for more than one night. And this could have been frustrating, because back in Acts chapter 5, when the Sanhedrin arrested the apostles... God rescued them on the very first night they were in prison. God sent an angel to escort them out of the prison on their very first night in prison in Acts chapter 5. They could have been on night 2. They could have been on night 7 by now. And they may have grown frustrated with God's delayed response, and that would have given them every reason to give up on prayer. But they didn't. The church could have quit praying, but they didn't. They gravitated to the one thing they could do in this moment, and they did it earnestly, as the English Standard Version says. And that description of them praying earnestly is, is worth noting, because that's how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke chapter 22, verse 44 says that Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Earnest prayer sincere, deep prayer. Isn't that what we're called to do anytime we're facing a difficult situation, anytime we're facing tragedy, anytime we're facing an impossibility? Do you remember what James said about prayer in James chapter 5 and verse 16? He said, the effective prayer of a righteous man, can't, righteous man can accomplish much. And then he appealed to the story of Elijah in the very next verse. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What is James trying to tell us with a reference to Elijah after telling us that prayer is powerful? Well, if you notice, he said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. James is saying that we're no different than Elijah. He's saying that our prayers can be just as effective as Elijah's prayers. He's communicating to us the fact that our prayers have the ability to affect change, to overcome that which seems impossible. And the reason our prayers have that ability has everything to do with who receives our prayers. Think about that model prayer Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 6. How did Jesus start the model prayer? Our Father who is in heaven. 
What is that phrase communicating to us? It's communicating the fact that the one to whom our prayers are addressed is not bound by earthly realities and earthly limitations. He is above such things, and because of that fact, nothing will be impossible for God, as Luke chapter 1 and verse 37 says. So the church is gathered while Peter's in prison. Despite reasons to give up on prayer, they don't. They keep praying. Because they understand it's the one thing they can do in this moment. See, it's beautiful. Here we are in Acts chapter 2, and everyone's doing what they should be doing. And that's why it's so interesting to me that despite doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing, everyone in Acts chapter 12 ended up being surprised when God intervened. See, Peter thought escape was, his escape was imaginary. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 9, we're told that Peter did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. See, here's what happens. Peter's in prison. He's chained. He's asleep. An angel shows up. Light fills the prison cell. The angel hits Peter to wake him up. And then the angel starts giving out orders. Get up. Get dressed. Put on your shoes. Grab your coat. And not one guard wakes up. The chains fall off of Peter's arms. The gates open automatically. And Peter walks out of the prison following that angel. And we're told in Acts chapter 12 and verse 9 that Peter did not think this was real. That he thought he was just having a dream. Peter is so confused that he doesn't even know what to do. The angel has to tell him what to do every step of the way. Peter just does not believe his escape is real. That is, until the angel disappeared, leaving him standing alone outside the prison on a Jerusalem street corner. Only then, then does he claim in Acts chapter 12 and verse 11, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. And it's fascinating to me that Peter didn't believe that what was happening to him was real, considering the fact that, as I mentioned a moment ago, he was among those apostles in Acts chapter 5 who was imprisoned by the Sanhedrin, and an angel showed up and escorted him out. He had done this before, and he still was surprised that an angel showed up to lead him out of prison. He wasn't expecting it, despite the fact that he had already experienced it. But Peter's not the only one that's surprised. When the angel disappeared, Peter thought, okay, where, where can I go? I'm in Jerusalem. I'm a fugitive from that prison. Where do I go now? He thought, okay, where's the church? I bet you they're gathered at Mary's house. I'm going to go to the one place where I know the church will be. And he shows up at Mary's house. He knocks on the door. A servant answers the door, hears his voice, recognizes his voice, and in her excitement, runs back into the house. Doesn't even let Peter in. Leaves this guy who's running from a prison, standing outside, knocking, trying to get inside. And she can't, she's excited to hear him that she doesn't even open the door. She runs and tells everybody, hey, 
Peter's outside. And guess what? The church thought that Peter's escape was impossible. They tell that servant girl, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. There's no way Peter's outside. But she kept insisting that Peter was outside. Still not letting him in, and that's kind of crazy in and of itself. But she's insisting that Peter's outside. And finally, one of them says, well, I bet it's just his angel. They came up with a rational explanation as to why she heard what she heard. There was a Jewish belief that when someone died, their angel, or we would probably say their spirit, might visit someone. And the, someone within the church is reasoning that that must be what happened, that Peter's already been executed, and his spirit is paying a visit upon departure. They can't wrap their minds around the possibility that Peter's out of prison. And here's the thing, isn't that what they're praying for? Aren't they gathered to pray for Peter's sake? And this is a group that has prayed to God before, and they've had their prayers answered. Back in Acts chapter 1, they've got to select a new apostle to replace Judas. They nominate a couple of guys, Barsabbas and Matthias, and they said, let's pray about it. Let's let God make the decision. So they pray to God. In Acts chapter 1, verse 24 through 26, God answered their prayer by choosing Matthias. Then you can go over to Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have been brought before the Sanhedrin for questioning. They healed the lame man and preached about Jesus. And, they, and when they were released from the Sanhedrin, from their little interrogation, they went back and met with the church. And they prayed. And their prayer was unique. They, they didn't pray for safety. They prayed for boldness to proclaim the word of God all the more. And when they prayed that prayer, we're told in Acts chapter 4, verse 29 and 30, that God responded by shaking the room in which they were gathered, by filling them with the Holy Spirit, and by emboldening them to proclaim the gospel. This is a group that has experienced God answering their prayers, and yet they're surprised when God answered their prayer. They did not expect an answered prayer. That's what's fascinating to me. Everybody's doing what they ought to be doing, but they're not expecting God to do what God does. Is that us? Are we like Peter in the church in Acts 12? We're doing our part, but we're not expecting God to do His? You see, as we look at this chapter, I think there are two big takeaways for us. And I think takeaway number one is that it's our responsibility to do our part. To fulfill God's expectations of us. Sometimes we try to do too much. Sometimes we try to take control of the situation. Sometimes we overstep our responsibility. That's exactly what Peter used to do. Think about it. When Jesus announced to his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and be killed, what did Peter do? Peter rebuked him and said, nope, not going to let that happen. I'm taking over this. You're not going to die. 
Or think about when that mob showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane that night they were in there praying. What did Peter do? Nope, I'm not going to let you have him. Here's my sword, let me cut off your head. Peter used to be the guy that always tried to do more than he needed to do. But sometimes we do less than we ought to do. Sometimes we fail to take the initiative. Sometimes we ignore our responsibility. And Peter had his fair share of these experiences as well, such as when he failed to keep his eyes focused on Jesus when he was walking on the water, and as a result, he started to sink. Or when he was unable to stay awake and pray in the garden at Jesus' request. Or, as you've probably already concluded we're getting to, when he denied Jesus those three times. After, after declaring that he would never fall away. And here's my point. We need to learn to simply do what God expects us to do. Not too much and definitely not too little. In Acts chapter 12, Peter and the church did exactly what was expected of them in that particular situation. Can the same be said of you and I? Are we doing what we ought to be doing? Now, I know you would love for me to spell that out for you right now. That's a little more complicated, and I'm really trying to not go too long with my sermon, so I'm not going to do that. Let me boil it down to this one verse that James uses in James chapter 4 and verse 8. He simply says, draw near to God. You look at Peter, you look at the church, and what they did in Acts chapter 12 is in their particular situation, in their circumstances, the one thing they did is they drew near to God. Peter entrusting God, the church and praying to God. That's your job. That's your part. That's what you're called to do. Draw near to God. If you take something away, take that, but also take this with you as well. Do your part, and then expect God to do His. You must remember that James 4 verse 8 instructs us to draw near to God, but then it says, and He will draw near to you. That verse indicates that if we do our part, God will reciprocate. He's been consistent at that. Noah built the ark. God sent the rain. Abraham left his homeland. God led him to a new land. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. God parted the Red Sea. Joshua walked around the city, and God brought down the walls. David stood up to Goliath, and God brought him down. Daniel refused to stop praying, and God tamed the lions. Never stop expecting God to show up, because he has promised in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 to never leave you or forsake you. I think sometimes we stop expecting God to do his part. We stop expecting God to answer the prayers because we've had prayers that weren't answered the way we thought they needed to be answered. We stop expecting God to bring in the harvest. We stop expecting God to change the situation. We stop expecting God 
to do anything about the things that concern us. We stop expecting God to change us. Why would we ever think that God has stopped being God? Never stop expecting God to do His part. Pictured on the screen, well, most of you recognize that mouse. And that's my at three years old, the first time we took her to Disney World. We had breakfast that morning in a restaurant called Ohana. They have these characters come in, do a little character parade through the restaurant. And on this morning, I think it was the second morning of our trip that year, we're having breakfast and Mickey Mouse. This is amazing. Mickey Mouse handpicked Micah to walk through the restaurant with him in the little character parade. She was so shy and so embarrassed, but she loved every minute of holding hands with Mickey Mouse walking through the restaurant. She loved it so much that on the fourth day of our trip, when we went to a different restaurant where Mickey Mouse was present, and it came time for that character parade, she hunted him down. (laughs) She hunted him down, grabbed his hand, and in her mind, she had developed expectation that when there's a character parade, I'm with Mickey. And she walked that restaurant with Mickey for the second time. I share that with you today because it reminds me that I should have great expectations when it comes to my Lord, just like my little girl had great expectations when it came to Mickey Mouse. Never stop expecting God to do his part because he's the God of the impossible. He's the God of answered prayers. He's the God of bringing in the harvest. He's the God of great things. We're gathered today to worship that God. At the start of this new year, 2022, what do you expect of 2022? What are you praying for in 2022? What are you going to do in 2022? And more importantly, what is God going to do in 2022. Maybe today you're here and you need to bring some burdens to him and you need to turn over some things that you're struggling with in this life and you need to go to him in prayer with the church for those situations. Maybe you're here today and you're lost. Your sins have never been paid for and you know that something's got to give. If you'll confess your belief that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, you can expect God to wash those sins away.
See, we're all here with expectations. Why don't we start having those met by our Lord today? If you have any need to respond to the invitation, we invite you to come while together we